0: Hello, my name is Garrison Lovely, and I'm not that interesting, but this is the most interesting people I know, conversations on science, ethics, and politics. Today's guest is Nathan J. Robinson. Nathan is the founder and editor of Current Affairs, a left-wing print magazine based out of New Orleans. He is also the author of five books on politics. Nathan holds a law degree from Yale and is pursuing a PhD in sociology from Harvard. He also happens to be my favorite active political writer. We cover a huge range of topics in today's episode, uh, including current affairs, persuading pol- people on politics, understanding the actual positions that our political opponents take, and engaging with their arguments, the rhetorical strategies employed by the intellectual dark web, the claim that the left is afraid to engage with the actual ideas of the right, giving a platform to odious people, purity policing on the left, 2016 and 2020, whether Bernie should give his millions away, and whether anyone should choose to be wealthy, the surprising non-overlap of effective altruism and the left, the risks of quantifying values, Bernie on immigration, nationalism, Stephen Pinker and the decline of violence, and why we think joining the left is the best way to influence the future in a positive direction. Super excited to be sharing this with you all today. Nathan, thank you so much for joining us. It's nice to be with you, Garrison. So can we just start off by talking about current affairs? What is current affairs? What are you trying to do? And what does success look like for it? Current Affairs
1: is one of the nation's foremost left political periodicals. We are a small magazine based in New Orleans, Louisiana. We have existed for about three years, uh, although people tend to assume we have existed for many more years because we sound like a venerable and ancient institution. Um, But essentially, you know, we're a magazine of political commentary. We're in print. once every other month, and we've put out 17, 18 issues now. And the basic purpose is to try and put out something that is political and from a left perspective, but is also readable and fun. Um, We combine... What I think is in-depth and substantive political commentary with, you know, if you pick up one of the magazines, it's full of artwork, full of fun stuff, full of games and puzzles and fake ads and sort of mad magazine type stuff, Um, because I felt... When we founded Current Affairs, that it was a little weird that even though I'm a staunch leftist, I really didn't want to read most left publications. Like I wouldn't pick up a copy of The Nation for pleasure. Not you know, I I love a lot of people who write for the nation, I've written for the nation, but uh I was like, Well, how do we how do we make left writing more engageable engaging and enjoyable? Mm-hmm. And um and, and I think we've we've managed to do that. We, we So I sort of pitch us as a leftist magazine for non-leftists because we target people that don't necessarily agree with us.
0: How would you uh, assess your impact so far? It's difficult to assess the impact of
1: anything, right? Ca- cause and effect are very difficult to measure. But I do know from the emails that I get from people – that we have had at least some effect on some people, right? It seems like every week I get um, a couple people saying things like, well, I've been reading current affairs for the last couple of years. I was a centrist a few years ago. I was a bit of conservative or I was a fan of Jordan Peterson or Ben Shapiro. And I've been reading your magazine, I've listened to the things you've had to say and you've really opened my mind. You've showed me that there can be this different kind of politics, this leftist politics that isn't uh, dogmatic and isn't joyless um, or depressing, but is very uplifting and very hopeful and creative and fun. And you know and and now I'm involved in the DSA or now I do this kind of activism or um, or or just now I am a happier person. I mean, we get that quite a bit. People who have just felt like our magazine has helped them through difficult times. Um, or it has enabled them to have better conversations with the people around them who disagree with them. So how wide that is, is is difficult to know. It's not that wide because we're a small circulation magazine. Um, But I know that we can affect people. I know that um, if we have managed to put together the kind of publication that is capable, at least, of having the kind of effect that I want to, which is, you know, I consider us a left magazine for non-leftists and we've reached non-leftists. We've reached people people email us saying, "Oh, my Republican dad, he loves current affairs. He you know, is excited for every issue. I can't read it because he always takes it away from me." So, uh, that's a that's exciting to me.
0: Yeah, that's super funny. My Republican dad also reads current affairs, but mostly because I send him articles directly. There you like go. Send me Wall Street Journal opinion pieces uh which I occasionally read. He'll send me photographs of the newspaper which is quite the worst way to read something.
1: <laughs> a, I read the Wall Street the Journal opinion section every day. You got to got to keep your uh, you got to challenge
0: yourself. How do you keep your blood pressure in check though?
1: Uh yeah, it it is uh, it is difficult. It's like the, uh, the joke about Chomsky grinding his teeth. Do you remember this?
0: Oh yeah, yeah, can you tell that story? This is
1: uh you know, Chomsky goes to a doctor and uh, uh the doctor says you're grinding your teeth or it goes to a dentist and uh, and he says, "Well, I, I don't know." when I would grind my teeth. And so he has his wife monitor him all day to find out when he might be grinding his teeth. Is it in his sleep or is it, you know, when he's sitting down working and it turns out that it's when he's reading the New York times every morning. This is uh (laughs)
0: <laughs> this and
1: this is what, like me with the New York uh, Wall Street Journal op-ed page, but I will say you know, it, makes me, it, it gives me ideas for articles. It makes me – it sharpens my thinking. Uh, every day I am forced to figure out, well, what is the actual response to this? Um, yeah. are, are they making some points that are good? I think it's a valuable exercise. I read more conservative publications than I do uh, left and liberal publications.
0: Yeah. It's, uh, are you familiar with the idea of ideological terrain tests?
1: Ideologic – no, I haven't heard that expression.
0: So it's basically, could you state your opponent's positions oh. or beliefs on a political issue and yeah. have them say, this is actually what I believe? Or I guess the real test is like mm. not knowing that it was really a liberal or progressive stating a conservative right. case.
1: Oh, I can totally do that. And and uh, I'm really good at it. And it's one of the things that I try and do in articles is when I'm responding to someone, I try and make their case not just as well as they would, but better than they would. And yeah. to, Steel Manning. Yeah. The, uh, um, to the point where I think – I could have had a career as a conservative pundit, and I am <laughs> proud of myself for not taking the, the dark road towards – And because it, it's very financially lucrative being yeah. one of these guys. And I could have been one of these guys because I know how to fake it, and I chose not to.
0: Well, you still got time. I mean, Hitchin <laughs> didn't turn until quite late in his career.
1: Yeah, you can always be one of those leftists who goes like, I left the left and I was disgusted. And then you just go around and they pay you to go and denounce all of your former friends.
0: Yeah. I mean, so this guy, uh, I was listening to the Ezra Klein show, which, you know, Ezra Klein has some faults, but I enjoy the interview. He's a current affairs and- reader. Is he? Ah, uh-huh. that's, that's interesting. Um, so he had this guy on who was one of the founders of the Niskanen Center, this like centrist, oh, yeah. former libertarian, uh, you know, people, and they were talking about like the psychological profiles of you know different political groups. And he made an argument that it was interesting. It was like libertarians have a lot more in common with leftists and socialists psychologically than with like normal people because they both <laughs> know a lot about politics and care deeply, and most people just don't yeah. give a shit about any of this stuff
1: that That's probably true, I mean both and they're both very angry a lot of the time,
0: yeah, <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think what first drew me to current affairs and really made me start paying attention was the fact that you know you've got these people like. Jordan Peterson being interviewed by Kathy Newman, where she's like clearly just very hostile and pouncing on the least charitable interpretation of everything that Peterson is saying, mm-hmm, right. um, or the perpetually aggrieved Sam Harris pointing to many real cases of critics taking his words out of context, misrepresenting his views. And then you know, to the fan base of these guys, this is all evidence mm-hmm. that the left, quote unquote, can't beat their arguments and yeah. are too dishonest to be taken seriously. Right. But then I, I saw, you know, you wrote these very long you know, takedown pieces of Ben Shapiro yeah. and Jordan Peterson and Sam Harris, and I was like, oh, they're actually engaging. Um, yeah. But what do you think of that, like, criticism of the left Well, intrude? yeah, it's
1: it's frustrating because because they're sort of right in many ways, where they say, oh, well, the left refuses to engage with us substantively, or the left is distorting what we're saying, um, or they they won't have a, a have a discussion with us, and to some degree that's true but they use that to claim well that's because they don't have any arguments and that frustrates me because i have arguments you know many of my <laughs> smart friends have arguments they've thought about these things very very seriously and so i want to come out and say well okay but that's not all of us and ch- and sort of call their bluff and say all right look you want to have a discussion Let's have a discussion. I will write out what I think are the fair criticisms of your position, your writings, your speeches, and and then you can respond to that. And it turns out that they never do. Once you do that – you know, we wrote about Peterson. He read the article. He sent like two tweets in response. One of which contained a logical fallacy. Like never responded to the substance of my claims. Ben Shapiro. People have confronted with him with my article over and over and over. He has never ever responded to it. Um, he knows it exists. He's mentioned me in his speeches, but he's never responded to it. Sam Harris never responded to our article. They ne- Charles Murray. Uh, he he responded on Twitter and just just dismissed it in one tweet. Um, you know they they have no they have no counter arguments when we write these things.
0: Yeah, yes, yeah, it's, it's funny too because Sam Harris will spend sometimes like days, entire ten thousand word you know responses on his blog to critics that he says are misrepresenting him. Mm-hmm. Uh, he had a whole series with Ezra Klein over like race and IQ, and this was like a huge debacle. It Absorbed so many like cycles of his attention, and I've seen him respond not once to the like ten thousand word piece you wrote about him. No.
1: I I mean, I mean look we're small you don't have to respond to everyone um but when it's clear that they know about the you know I don't know that Sam Harris has seen the article but I know that for example Charles Murray has seen the article we we wrote about him and he had a long response to the Southern Poverty Law Center's uh profile of him when he where he quite correctly pointed out that they were distorting things in his work but I was very careful not to distort things in his work I was very careful to say You know, he he doesn't say explicitly that the um, uh, the testing IQ testing gap uh, across racial groups is purely genetic. He says, you know, X, Y and Z. uh, But I still think he's a racist because of this, that and the other. And Mm -hmm. and and here's why I think it's justifiable to call him a racist. And, you know, he he again, I know he knows about it. I know he looked at it um, and he has nothing to say. So in that case. The left does have arguments. We do have responses.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I, I think uh, part of the appeal of these guys is like this kind of dangerous ideas <clears throat> and like transgressive politics. Like the contrary. <clears throat> Sorry. <clears throat> Just choking over here. Joke away. Mm. See, we, we are choking on our own words on the left. Um, so, you know, <laughs> there are these people that uh, are contrarian in, in like their personality types and their the way they think. Uh, I, and probably one of them you you may be as well and i think there's this appeal of like you know sam harris saying like you know we are at war with islam or ben shapiro saying there are only two genders or all of the intellectual dark web people saying there are natural differences between men and women and that largely or entirely explains the pay gap or lack of women in stem mm -hmm. and they've you know they're attracted to these like forbidden fruit ideas Um, but these people i think can also be won over to the left uh and you know I was initially kind of persuaded by the transgress- transgressive edgy humor of Chocolate yeah. trap house uh current affairs like right. helped solidify these ideas for me, and like the left is you know very transgressive you you are attacking sure. like the core fundamental principles that you know undergird our society <laughs> uh, and and I think we can totally win these guys away like these very online you know mostly white dudes who are you know disaffected for whatever yeah. reason
1: well, a lot of people yeah I mean you can't win everyone. Um I, I don't think you could win Shapiro himself uh for example but he's got I, too much
0: invested at this he's point.
1: He's got too much right exactly. Um you, you go I, oh, everything I've done for the last my entire career was completely wrong and illogical you know you can <laughs> it, it'll be very hard to get uh to get that. But there are plenty of their fans who I think are you know, and and I take the Peter the Peterson fans I'm very sympathetic to them. I mean, I did an essay called something like, you know, dear lobsters, come and join the left, um, <laughs> and it, it was saying, look, uh, you know, you, you everyone feels alienated, miserable under capitalism. Everyone wants to uh, find meaning um, and and connection. Everyone wants a set of rules for life that can help guide them. Um, we we can provide those things, and we can provide better and more sensible things um, without any of the sort of uh, uh, cruel and callous and often uh, bad arguments that that those guys are making, um, and and also asking those people to look seriously. If you care, if you really do care about facts and you care about reason, then. Don't just look at who's, who's using the words facts and reason. Think critically about the arguments <laughs> that those people are making. So, for example, um, uh, Natalie Wynn, ContraPoints, uh, mm-hmm. made a video explaining very clearly why Ben Shapiro's perspective on trans people was wrong right and she says it's because he's he's not really underst- he thinks this is a debate about biology but actually we agree about the biology it's a debate about how language should be used and he doesn't really understand that it's about you know when when you should change words because words change to describe particular things and she has a, she lays it out all very clearly now he's never he's never responded he's not going to debate her about this because she she would crush him because she's right right and she's sensible <laughs> and he's not listening um, and, and the same with the gender pay gap people, where like sociologists write about this all the time. And sociologists know full well that a lot of it is because men and women are in different occupations. Um, and, and in fact, the argument that is made by sociologists is women's occupations, occupational sorting means that the occupations that women are in are underpaid relative. And yet you still have people like Christina hoff Summers going up Prager University and going, oh, you think there's a gender pay gap, but it's actually actually just because women are in different professions and you go well there's a huge discussion of this in sociology this isn't a
0: revelation yeah yeah it's, it's actually like michelle alexander in the new jim crow discusses like differential crime rates among you know racial groups yes and if you look in like drug use like there's actually like, no real differences but within like you know violent crime there are like real differences and we can say it's like whether it's reporting but like with you know some things like murders it's like there's it's probably going to be reported, but yeah. you can still have a sociological explanation for this yes. that like doesn't rely on like but racist, essentialist beliefs. No.
1: You know who's more worried about like uh, black on black crime, as they call it, uh, you know, than anyone else? It's people in black neighborhoods. You know, they are they don't pay, you know, the conservatives don't pay any attention because they don't actually care about black on black crime except when they're using it as a stick with which to beat the left. But actually, you know, they stop the violence campaigns in, in you know, black cities across the country all the time. And and very serious thinking about how, how we reduce the amount of violence in places and how do we do uh, successful interventions. Um, these are things that people think about who are sensible, um, but th- but there's this like failure to listen and this, fa- you know, not, not really, you know, picking the most unserious left people and treating those people as a representative of the left or finding some 19 year old college student and calling that the left, even though they're still figuring out what they believe and they've only read a few things um, instead of talking about like, well, what are actual sociologists and left economists and political scientists? What are they arguing?
0: yeah yeah this is like uh uh my old boss was when amazon lost the new york city campus or withdrew actually um he was like very upset about it he had real estate in in you know greenpoint and he was like the people in the forums on facebook are like such idiots and making these terrible arguments and like you know because they wanted this thing to happen and it happened and they were bad and dumb it was now bad that this happened and i'm like well don't engage with their arguments." Like. There's an economist in our office who's talking about general and partial equilibrium, and making a much more principled case about like, why the Amazon deal would have been bad for the neighborhood potentially. Yeah. And it's like you don't just get to pick like your your opponent and then say this is like representative of the thing I'm arguing against. If you want to be honest, you, if you want to just like score points and build a following, then it's like a great way to do that.
1: Yeah, of course. I mean, there are always going to be, I mean, and which is why I don't write articles about random conservatives. I find in comment sections, I write it about the people (laughs) who are selling a million books um, because they're the people that are, that have influence and that are worth engaging in. But if you look at someone like uh, Dave Rubin, my current affairs uh, co-editor, Ashley McRae wrote an article about the Dave Rubin show and she analyzed a bunch of episodes and You know, here's a guy who says he's interested in debate and discourse, and his whole thing is, oh, why won't the left engage in it? Uh, But, I mean, there are plenty of leftists he could invite on his show who he doesn't have on his show. The only Mm -hmm. time he has leftists on his show is when he wants to speak to these, like, I'm a leftist, but I don't like political correctness leftists. He'll have those people on to talk about political correctness. But to talk about, like, actual left political beliefs or to talk about you know, racial and social justice and try to get a defense of those
0: things. Um,
1: they, they just pretend that serious people don't exist when they do.
0: Yeah. No, I, I think, uh, I mean, so would you, if Ben Shapiro or Dave Rubin wanted to come on the Current Affairs podcast, what would you do?
1: Yeah, of course. Of
0: course. Yeah. And and so some people would say you're giving a platform. I mean, Dave Rubin is like, I don't know quite as much about him. Yeah. But I think he's like a little bit less objectionable yeah. than like Ben Shapiro and his comments yeah. about, you know, Palestinians. Yeah, definitely. Well, so, so what would you say to those those left critiques?
1: Well, they already. <laughs> I mean,
0: I, I, it's kind of absurd to
1: me, right? Because they already have a, such a huge platform. Like, I'm not the reason that one of those people gets heard. They have millions of people listening to them already and what I am able to do is get them onto a different platform where I can actually, hopefully, if I if I do my homework and do my job right, uh, can make them look silly and can expose mm-hmm. uh, can, can expose them for what they are. Um, and I think that's extremely beneficial. You know, people. I, I think this argument was really settled with like the the Bernie Sanders on Fox thing recently, where like people are like, oh, don't go on Fox, you're legitimizing them. And you're like, well, Fox is already legitimized completely. They're like the number one cable station in the country. Country. Like, and so the question is, can you use this to achieve the desired political effect that advances your causes?
0: And I think Bernie showed that, yes, if you do it well, you absolutely can. Yeah. And so so what I'm hearing here is a very pragmatic case, but, mm-hmm. you know, current affairs and like, I guess the very far left is seen as like purity police sometimes, especially mm. when talking about candidates. So how, how do you respond to like, Oh, you know, no candidate will be good enough for them. You know, they don't even want a president to exist. Like these people are completely unreasonable and, and can't <laughs> be trusted. Well, I'm pragmatic. That's why I'm supporting, you know, Bernie Sanders,
1: and not Mike Gravel or Noam Chomsky. You know, I've like <laughs> I, I, Bernie Sanders is my compromise. I feel as if I'm being very reasonable here. But um, but no, I I I mean, one of the arguments is look, uh, I. I think they they're making a mistake when they say purity police because the argument that I was making in twenty sixteen in February twenty sixteen I wrote an article that said um, if the Democrats don't nominate Bernie if they nominate Hillary then Trump is going to be president yep. um, and the argument there was actually um, this whole like purity versus compromise thing is misconceived because you think that compromise the compromised candidate is the pragmatic candidate. But that's not actually true. I mean, we know from polling that most Americans have roughly progressive beliefs, that they support a number of things on the sort of left progressive agenda. Um, The theory that the left has is that actually, if you run very sincerely on those values and you sell them to people well and you work hard, um, that is actually more pragmatic than Uh, having a politics that doesn't seem to stand for much or seems to buckle under pressure um, and that people can't really get excited and enthused about – and that, I think, was borne out a little bit in the 2016 election, where it turned out that the thing that looked pragmatic was not actually as pragmatic as people thought. And the thing that looked like purism uh, turned out to actually be pretty pragmatic, which is why this this second time around, you have a lot of people who the last time were Hillary people who are now going, OK, well, I think I might get behind Bernie.
0: Yeah, I mean, that's actually me. I was uh, you know, not a Bernie supporter in 2016. And it was for very principled, pragmatic reasons. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, I, I had an, an economist subscription for my 18th birthday. I was, you know, a neoliberal shill. Um, <laughs> I, I was really like a social Democrat if it came down to it and yeah. focused a lot on like criminal justice reform. But sure. I, I didn't see the larger kind of picture. And after the election, I was just like, well, what the fuck? I clearly yeah, was right. wrong. And I don't – there are some people like Peter Dow is a famous example of somebody who like <laughs> yeah, you know, came to he's, Jesus. He's on the party <laughs> train now. Peter Chairman Dow. Dow. <laughs> and but there's still these others um like Brock and like these Obama campaign people who are mobilizing against the stop Bernie thing and it's like what did we what were you not paying attention like what how do you explain this like yeah. you know extinction level event for for your entire political project
1: yeah it it it's true um well it, you could always come up with justifications and explanations and in fact you know you can say well Hillary won the electoral college it was a very close election uh, Trump stole the election uh, he cheated uh, it was James Comey it was the Russians it had nothing to do yeah. with the failure of our political ideology which you know there are actually okay, it was a close election um, oh, and,
0: I mean, any one thing could have tipped it Like yeah. that's true but it should not have been that close it should have been like a steamroll election right. against a, a terrible candidate who just sexually assaulted women and uh, like yeah. bragged about it
1: <laughs> yeah even I didn't think uh, towards the end i did not think trump was going to win because the access hollywood tape came out and i thought uh this oh, he he's toast
0: so, yeah yeah
1: he can't possibly win really and then and then he still won uh, and you think well without that how how far he would have won by a lot um he, or he could have so like this was a complete disaster and and so but there are of course the other thing is well how much of it was strategic mistakes on behalf of the clinton campaign because it was not just bad in terms of uh, uninspiring political ideology. It was bad in terms of actual campaign tactical mistakes, like yeah. going to Arizona instead of Wisconsin, and yeah. and those things are fixable. So you could say, well, this was, but well, this was because it was a badly run campaign. Um, and I think so. I, I, I mean, I do think there is, in part, you have to argue that not just that the left perspective is more pragmatic even though i think it is but i think it's it's important to not just argue from pragmatic grounds because there is a certain extent to which even if it were somewhat less pragmatic i mm-hmm. would still be a person of the left and i would and my argument would be yes it may be less pragmatic but it's more principled and it's better and we have to work harder Because it's better. So yes, it may be less easy. Like if it turns out that the easiest way to get into power is to adopt all of the Republican talking points. Right, which is kind of Mm -hmm. what Bill Clinton did. He he did very well on this. And if it turns out that that's an extremely successful political strategy, is just you know run to the right, and then you'll pick off some Republicans, and the and the Democrats won't have anywhere to go. um, You know, maybe that is the politically optimal strategy. Um, I just also happen to think that it's not a a defensible strategy, and that you know even if that's easy, this this isn't supposed to be easy. This is supposed to be about making the world better not just getting into power um mm-hmm. and so there is a degree to which i think you have to do the hard principled thing e- e- rather than the easy pragmatic thing
0: yeah yeah i i, I agree um yeah and <sighs> coming back to the election you, you wrote a piece recently that some will see as like unreasonable uh, which is that bernie should give his millions of dollars oh yes this
1: one this is like what yes. this is this probably the most another, divisive current affairs article in the history of our magazine
0: i it's incredible um yeah and, and they're tied to this other article uh saying it's basically just a moral to be rich and was this you understood in <laughs> him or is there an actual aq smith out there
1: oh aq smith was a teacher i had in high school uh and uh, he's dead now. Uh, but I I needed a pseudonym for that article because I didn't want to get the blowback personally, so I published it under the name Aq Smith.
0: So, so I recently just read like a very prominent effective altruism person. Uh, he posted on Facebook back in August and the, had like 160 comments on it, and they're all talking about like Aq Smith versus like Nathan Robinson, and and it was just really funny because I'm like I'm pretty sure this was you. Um. (laughs) yes that was me A.Q.
1: Smith is me uh, this is the first time I think I've confessed this publicly
0: Amazing. Uh, breaking news. So can you just lay out the argument for how it's immoral to be rich and like what implications this actually has yeah. and then tying it to like why Bernie should give it his millions away?
1: I mean, I think this is uh, where a lot of the effective altruists come from is, is a very simple it, – it's a very simple argument, right? Which is that, you know, that being a moral human being in the world requires you to think about the possible – consequences of your actions what you mm-hmm. can do to alleviate the pain of your fellow beings human and the other animal um, if you are extremely wealthy it means you have a lot of power over a certain set of resources you are able to direct resources in one direction or a different direction and so you have an obligation to think about what the optimal uh, direction for your uh, how, how to direct your choices, and mm-hmm. if you 're sitting on a giant pile of money, you can help a lot of people with that money, so you have to you are under a moral duty to do that because you can save lives and if you can save lives and choose not to save lives, then that's probably probably makes you a bad person <laughs> yeah. um, and so that 's kind of the immoral to be rich thing and one of the key key points about it in in the uh, in the original article was that the question of what you have to do, what morality requires you to do with your riches is a little separate from the way this is usually framed, which is like, are rich people entitled to their money? Yes. Um, cause the usual thing is, well, it's, it's like the Robert Nozick. Uh, well, if you get, uh, if you get your money through free transactions, is it yours? And, and, uh, and is it legitimate? Um, uh, is it legitimate to get get wealthy um, and be mm-hmm. rich? As if that answers the moral question. Well, that may answer the question of whether you uh, obtain a title to this through legitimate means, but it doesn't really answer the question of once you get into, once you find yourself in the position of of ha- having a tremendous pile of wealth, what are you? Uh, what does morality require you to do with it? And I happen to think that the effective altruist position and the utilitarian position, the Peter Singer position. Is, and, and the position that uh, G.A. Cohen, who is a socialist, sort of comes to uh, or, or at least takes very seriously in his great essay and book, If You're an Egalitarian, How Come You're So Rich, which is if you are a person who believes in the a more egalitarian world, that may uh, – and pro- that probably does impose obligations on you to use your wealth to help other people.
0: Yeah. It's also just strategically a great move, and and mm-hmm. effective altruists talk a lot about like reputation, reputational risk, and you know, is it ever okay to lie in advance of like a utilitarian mm. cause? And they often come down on the side of like it's just unlikely that it would be true. It, it's unlikely that it's better to be you know to lie because mm-hmm. you know, your reputation is one of the most right. valuable things that you have. And so Bernie giving his millions away would like obviate all these arguments against his yes him being wealthy. And it just like it's just gonna be an enormous distraction the same way that Elizabeth Warren's, you know, Native American right. Ancestry claims are an enormous distraction From like the issues that really matter and what they want To be talking about.
1: Yeah, so In the Bernie article that I wrote they Arguing that Bernie should give his millions away, the first Part is dealing with This question of, well When you have millions of dollars, do you, uh, you, do you Have to give it away? And that I think Is, a you know, there are arguments that Socialists make that you don't have to give it away Yeah, you know, I don't accept those arguments, but they make them um, mm-hmm. But the second half Of it is this pragmatic perspective That says, okay, fine But we really don't want to even be having this discussion in 2020. The fact is that if Bernie could survive without these millions of dollars and live on his Senate salary... It would be better, from a political perspective, way better, if he just gave his money to uh, gave his money away and neutralize this issue forever, so that the leftists didn't have to spend the next few next year and a half trying to explain why the socialist candidate is also a millionaire. Um, yeah. You know, so why wouldn't you give your money away? You could get everyone would think you were incredibly generous and wonderful, and you'd eliminate the issue forever. So, I think from a pragmatic perspective, it's stupid not to do it.
0: Yeah, I, I think on the left, the criticism. Is like, oh, you should really fight for systemic change and giving your money to charity mm-hmm. will not actually change anything. And this is just like such clearly a false choice, false choice to me. Yep. You know, you can do both and it makes your case even stronger if you are. Um, and if if Bernie had given like sixty plus percent of his income or wealth to charity in the tax returns, he would have blown everyone else out of the water. It would have been mm-hmm. like, wow, this guy actually is the real yep. deal. And he's clearly spent his career like fighting for people, yeah. and he, you know, got arrested as a youth doing civil rights activism. Right, um, it's consistent, but like this just makes it—it's kind of like an asterisk now. <laughs>
1: Yeah, exactly, and it's 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 like um, the, the the argument, yeah, is that uh, systemic cha- the, oh you know it has to change has to be systemic charity doesn't and you go well first off, um, yeah you don't fix the system but it doesn't mean that you're not saying that systemic change is, is, is important or that it, you can help a small number of people and you will make a huge difference in that small number of lives and that makes it worth it, um, but also one of the things I say in the article is that if Bernie gave a million dollars away, say, if he, if he you know, paid off a bunch of people's medical debt or whatever. Mm-hmm. He would show that what redistribution of wealth, which he advocates, could do. He would provide an example of what, how resources could be better directed. It wouldn't be charity. It would almost be like a demonstration of how obscene it is that individual people have and keep large amounts of money that could be doing tremendous social good if you show what that social good is if you really give a demonstration of it like it gives this very um it it, it, it paints this very vivid picture of the kind of society that he is advocating oh i see in this is why it's obscene to have millionaires because they could just give away how, one out of their 2 millions and all of this good could be done
0: Yeah. Yeah. On the flip side, you know, when I got exposed to effective altruism and really believed it, you know, I was like, okay, I'm just, I never plan to be wealthy. Or if I, you know, accrue wealth, I'd try and like deploy it to, you know, the optimal charitable causes and, you know, for political ends and, and whatever. Um, and it actually made me much more primed for socialism because mm-hmm. I no longer had to be like, all right, now I'm becoming a socialist and I have to give up like this, you know, mm-hmm. bougie life of like a you know private school for my kids and like, yeah. you know, nice cars and houses. So I'm like, I'd already given those things up in my mind. Right. So I think there's like this natural overlap. And it was striking to me that effective altruism is not more left wing. Given that, like it's already this very radical idea that like asks a lot of you as a person.
1: Yeah, it's odd because I find myself, and in fact, a lot of EA people read Current Affairs and have responded very well to it. Uh, yep. Those, uh, <laughs> it, it, it is a little odd to me because I'm so sympathetic with this kind of. Um, uh, not quite utilitarian, but definitely consequentialist approach Mm -hmm. uh, to thinking about, about our obligations. And yet I depart from the EA community a lot politically. I was just reading, I forget where it was, but one of the main groups put out this
0: like, campaign guide for 2020 oh my goodness i have read this as well i I wanted to talk about it actually
1: (laughs) (laughs) and the uh, the recommendation was that cory booker is the mathematically optimal candidate to vote for yes
0: yeah so i I spent a really long time reading this and like posting critiques on a facebook who put it out uh this guy kyle bagajian um and i've actually met him at an effective altruism Mm -hmm. conference um you know really smart guy you know he put in a ton of work (laughs) Mm, oh yeah it's like, for, for the listeners, it's like this 80-page document that explains this Excel model that you can download and, like, tweak. Um, and it, you know, goes through all these different political causes and and all the candidates and what their kind of perspective is on it. Mm-hmm. And, it like, weights them based on importance and then the candidates, like, goodness or badness of their policies from, like, a utilitarian standpoint, taking into account, like, animal welfare, you know, the welfare of people who are not Americans, all this yeah. stuff. And it ultimately comes out to recommending Cory Booker. The first go around, it was like this guy from New Jersey. I, some guy who's like in the last place. I forget his name. Do, do you know who I'm talking about? Like this moderate.
1: I can't time? even remember him all. Yeah,
0: yeah. So then Cory Booker and then like Bernie was rated like I think below Biden. He was very low. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I was like – I was reading this. I'm like, what the fuck? Why is this so wrong? And I'm like, okay, you no, know, this person did do his homework. Why like, do I disagree? Mm-hmm. And – I'm curious to hear your thoughts, but my, my yeah. disagreements were like mainstream economists were like a big driver of what was whether a policy was good or not.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So um, th- just first, there was something really funny in this document, which is that he ha- has like at the beginning, there's a list of source explanations of the sources. Mm-hmm. And w- one of the sources is current affairs. And he describes current affairs and he says current affairs. Uh, it's a commentary site that publishes mostly rhetoric, not, almost nothing of substance.
0: So, so that was that was because of me, actually. I pointed oh, really? on his second edition, and I pointed him towards your Pete Booty Drop article, um, <laughs> and and then he was like, "I read that, and I looked at a few other Current Affairs pieces and, and came to that conclusion." I told him to read Chomsky as well, and he like uh, and, is but, going to take that into account, I guess.
1: What I loved though is that it said that about Current Affairs, and then like all, uh, and then like the mainstream media was listed. As a as a, as another category of source, but it was like current affairs was equ- equivalent to all of the rest of the news sources. Said, <laughs> so one source, current affairs, one source, the mainstream media, and I was like, well, he may think we're totally totally lacking in worthiness of respect, but he at yeah, least think- thinks we're significant <laughs> enough to warrant inclusion. Um, but no, so yeah, so as I was reading it, I mean, the, the first thing that that really struck me where I went oh this is this is this is where it's gone wrong is you know first off, I'm always sceptical of people who think you can derive. The correct answer to moral questions purely mathematically, and try and say you know this is uh, almost objectivity, um, <laughs> and, and and try and remove and because it, it, there's this big pro, uh, there's this big risk of just you're totally blind to how big your own biases are, and so yep. for one example here was um, when he talked about charter schools and talked about uh, vouchers. Well, his, his discussion of charter schools and vouchers says. Well, uh the outcomes are mixed, but uh empirically uh, but there are economists economists say that they're good uh, teachers say that vouchers and charter schools are a horrible idea, but teachers are self-interested, so on balance, we're going to say charter schools are good.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's great, yeah, economists are just like the drivers of that <laughs> entire piece, and, and a lot of effective altruism people are economists or you know followers of. Famous economists, particularly a trio from George Mason University, which is famously libertarian, and yeah. you know their economics department is funded by the Koch brothers and and right. their ilk, and it's just got this such a strong influence of like market fundamentalism that undergirds a lot of uh, effective altruist thinking. That's like just because of a few people at the beginning, and probably says more about like social you know, well, groups affecting ideas than about like the true nature of reality.
1: Well, I mean, it's also it, it also makes sense though because their desire is to be as quantitative and objective as possible, yeah. and this is the thing that economics kind of promises you. Um, and and one of the 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 reasons that this goes so wrong in education is because it ends up. Maximizing quantifiable outcomes and totally ignoring outcomes that are very, very difficult to quantify. So, mm. if you look at the pro charter school studies uh, that come out of, say, there's a the the, the Walmart the Walton family funds this pro education reform think tank at the University of Arkansas, and I was just looking at one of their studies, um, and it's terrible. It's really poorly done, um, and because all it does literally is it says how much money do we spend on charter schools versus how much money per student do we spend on public schools and what are the resulting reading and math scores? And it says, ah, charter schools, you spend less money and the reading and math scores are higher. Therefore, charter schools are better. And from the perspective of someone who actually, anyone who actually spends time in schools knows that that's, a horrible way to figure out whether charter schools are more effective. First, because they didn't take into account any of the selection things about, like, well, are yeah. you picking? The, but, 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 leaving, even leaving that aside, maximizing math and reading scores is only a small part of what schools are supposed to do. And if teachers are overworked and miserable, and students are overworked and miserable, and the school is a, is a dreary Stalinist tyrannical dystopia but you've maximized reading and math scores your school might have gotten horribly worse and yet your outcome of desire has gotten better and you're concluding that this is a good program and we should do more of yeah. it uh, <laughs> like you know you, you can end up if you if you if you're not looking if you're not thinking about the experiences of people you might end up making people 's experience this is like GDP this is the GDP problem is you know uh, you might be maximizing people 's welfare economically even as they 're all becoming really, really unhappy yeah. um, and and if that 's happening then it 's questionable whether you 're measuring the right thing
0: yeah, I remember having an argument with a friend in college who was from Kenya and he had grown up with like not very much money. Um, you know, unlike most international students mm-hmm. at my university, and he was saying he was so much happier before he came to Cornell, and um, even though his like material well-being was like just mm-hmm. worse, um, and and same of the people around him, and I was just like, this was unacceptable to my like anonymous <laughs> adult brain, um, mm-hmm. and I just like kind of fought it. It's like, oh well, you don't like you could say people don't know what they're missing, or like obviously like infant mortality yeah. rates like you know you want those to be as low as possible yeah of course. it doesn't actually score that yeah, well on that sure. compared to even developing countries in some cases right. um but but in a lot of ways like you know countries like costa rica are just like much happier and in, in many metrics uh, than the united states even though they're like you know many many times poorer and i've come to like believe that you know that actually could be totally true um there are many ways that like our society could produce material well-being without producing actual yeah. well-being and you know this is sometimes comes up in effective altruism where people, you know, poor people in the Midwest, you know, who are, or who are formerly like working class and lost jobs and because of deindustrialization, um, you know, don't have like a lot of sympathy from people in like effective altruism circles because, you know, they're aware that like there are billions of people living on less than five dollars right. a day. And it if you think about it from like a hedonic utilitarian standpoint, it's possible that, you know, the people who are even poorer are actually like Better off from a well-being perspective, um, and it's a lot to right. do with like relative well-being and like how you used to be and the people around you are, and mm-hmm. that can lead to serious political problems, as we've seen.
1: Yeah, if uh, if you if all of your people are uh, if you get have a group of people whose incomes are technically higher and their standard of living is technically higher, but they're all on the verge of committing suicide because all of their all of the meaning has been sapped from their lives and all of their uh, community and family relations have disappeared and they're on their own all the time and all they do is watch television, um, it is very hard to say that they're actually better off um, to me, And which is why, to me, um, I always think that when you try and think about well-being, you have to begin with people's experience and why I'm skeptical of people who don't do qualitative research or take qualitative research seriously or take seriously talking to people and understanding them and getting, and this is why I was very upset about Paul Bloom's book against empathy, Mm. um, where he, you know, he he makes perfectly fine arguments that you shouldn't just use like weepiness as a guide to policy, which I agree. Um, But also like you really do need to get a deep understanding of people. If you're going to make judgments about what makes them better, better or worse off and economists, you, you Theoretically, they say this because they're always like, "Oh, people themselves are the best guides to what their own choices and desires are." And you go, "Well, I, I agree, but that's why you really have to listen to them instead of just assuming um, what 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 improves their lives and doesn't."
0: Yeah, yeah, and, and you could even look at like this with you know single payer healthcare, where people will be like, "Oh, you know, the majority of Americans say they like their insurance as mm-hmm. it is." Um, but you know, the reality is like, you don't know what the other alternative is Mm -hmm. and people on Medicare, I think like it even more. And you know, they're not going to lose it when they change jobs or get fired or whatever.
1: Right. Single parent. Yeah, that's exactly right. Right. When you, when you think about it, you say, well, what are they really saying when they say they like their current health insurance? And in order to figure out what they're really saying, you need to talk to them a bit more and you Mm -hmm. go, okay, well. Tell me about your experiences with health care. And they say, oh, well, you know, I was, I, you know, my insurance company, my deductible is hugely high. They never pay for anything. I've been all in all these arguments with them. And they go, well, why, why do you say you like your health insurance then? And they say, well, I don't want to lose it, obviously. It'd be worse off if I didn't have it. And and, and when you, when people always cite these polls saying, oh, well, people really, if they found out they would be losing their private health insurance, uh, they wouldn't want Medicare for all. And you go, well, that's true. But what that reflects is not necessarily them not wanting Medicare for all. It's them fearing being worse off. And what you need to do is you need to be able to assure them that they will be better off and show them they will be better off. And when you do that, um, then they'll say, oh, I'm fine. Then I, in that case, then I don't obviously don't want my private health insurance. If you can describe to me and promise me and make me uh, trust that you are going to actually fulfill that promise uh, mm-hmm. in in implementing a different system. And so you know, polling, just very simple up and down polling where they say, oh, well, people don't like Medicare for all when uh, you tell them it raises their taxes well have you told them that actually they're going to end up with more money in their pocket at the end of the day mm-hmm. um because the premiums are going to go away even as the taxes go up because if you haven't told them that you haven't told them anything
0: yeah yeah i was when i was researching the psychedelics article uh, mm. there was polling. the
1: fantastic
0: new psychedelics article in <laughs> <or> the <laughs> yeah. latest edition of current affairs that everybody should read you know we missed an opportunity uh 419 was bicycle day which is when albert hoffman first did lsd oh. Um, we could have released the online version oh it 's going to come online soon. look forward to that uh, listeners um, and so yeah I was I was looking at polling on uh you know drug decriminalization, and it 's astonishing like seventy plus percent of Americans oppose decriminalizing you know lsd um, mm. or m d m a and and that, not even legalizing it you know like currently mm. saying like okay it 's fine wow. for people in possession of this to go to prison um, but when you ask people you know in in these polls it 's like uh, you know, psilocybin, the active ingredient in mushrooms has been used to treat like depression, uh, in like cancer patients. If you were, you know, in a, if you were a cancer patient and presented this and knew it was safe, (laughs) would you do it? And like, majority say yes. And it's like, it's a leading question, but at the same time, the evidence is, is, it's true. It's like, it actually does help people. It's extremely safe. Um, and there's just been like decades of misinformation and propaganda put out about. it.
1: Yeah, exactly. So it's like you, you know,
0: you really have to try and
1: I, I generally, you know, I'm a person who has a lot of faith in people, but not if, <laughs> not on just up or down. Uh, you know, national. This is why you probably shouldn't have just. Uh, this is why direct uh, democracy. Pro Direct democracy propositions that they tend to oh, be yeah. bad because they just frame them in way in whatever way is calculated to get people to vote in the one direction or the other. I believe very strongly in direct democracy, but mm-hmm. I think de- democracy is a process that you have to do together and not just like an up or down polling thing
0: yeah yeah I, I definitely went through a little bit of like skepticism of democracy after Trump was elected and then I thought more about it and I'm like well he actually lost the popular vote by like quite mm-hmm. a bit. Um, also, like our institutions forced us between like two candidates that were not very appealing. Yeah, um, and in a working democracy, we would never have been like faced with with those choices right. in the first place.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's not. Yeah, first, it's not much of a democracy. Yeah, <laughs> um, uh, and then second, you know, well, you you can only really give a verdict on democracy if you've given them the full range of choices that they would want if they had the choices they wanted.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I want to circle back to some international uh, considerations and like Bernie mm. Sanders' recent comments on immigration. Okay. Oh God, um, oh, God. Yeah, I haven't followed super closely, uh, but I, I read this article from 2016 about how conservatives like Bernie on immigration, like Steve King, saying like nice things about him. Mm-hmm. And it's like when Steve King is saying nice things about you, you mm-hmm. should help and him culture your position. Yeah, yeah, right. Mm-hmm. Um, so can you just like state some of the stuff that Bernie said recently, and then, like why the yeah, left finds it so objective? It's bad you know
1: (laughs) it's bad Uh, i mean he he said i mean he so first he says what he's often saying like oh i'm not for open borders which Mm -hmm. it's unclear quite what that means right everyone throws around open borders and uh, uh and he, he, you know, he was in an interview with Ezra Klein, I think. He said, uh, oh, oh, open borders, that's a Koch brothers position. Yeah. And those of us like me who believe in the free movement of people and are pro open borders, we can wince at that. Um, but because most people aren't pro open borders, so that's not particularly radical. But he also he says things that are just also like even from a more moderate immigration perspective, very frustrating and you know problematic to use the fashionable term um like when he went on the daily show recently he said something like the quote is something like well if you if you opened up the immigration system too much you'd have all these people from china and vietnam and uh he cited a few other countries non-european countries Mm -hmm. right and Honestly, and Mexico, and and he, and honestly, it sounded kind of racist because mm. it was distinguishing the countries that he picked as the countries that we should be afraid of having too many people were all non-white countries, mm. and so in doing so, he reinforces the Trumpian idea that there is this kind of horde of non-white people just waiting to flood this country and do devastating damage to it and 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 he also uh in recent thing on immigration said something like building more detention centers and i think it is fox news it was on his fox news appearance he said we should build more detention centers i think and um and and we shouldn't build more we've already got a lot of people in detention and we yeah. need to be letting them go <laughs> not detaining more of them and uh and and so he doesn't talk about immigration in a way that r- really effectively undermines the Trump myth about immigration. And that Trump myth is becoming very common and it's very dangerous. I just wrote an article about this uh, because the New York Times uh, ran an article that said like the border is, there's a border crisis where the, we can't, we just can't handle all the people flowing in. And it turns out that that's, that really isn't what's going on uh, when you deconstruct it. But but among liberals and conservatives there's this narrative of like this unsustainable immigration problem and it frustrates me as a leftist to have the left candidate uh kind of contributing to that
0: yeah yeah that article is amazing um basically detailing how the new york times is you know how to manufacture a crisis
1: mm-hmm. um, yeah that, oh, yeah that's the
0: called. title mm-hmm. and uh yeah i mean you look at like they're like saying oh we've never seen this many immigrants like flowing to our borders like in the last like eight years, and you look further back, and there's like orders of magnitude more people are coming in, and you know yeah. people are just being let out right after you know their judicial hearing or whatever. And it's like, so you think they should just be held in jail until they can be processed, and just for immigrating in the first place? And there's all these like latent assumptions, um, and this is like the reasonable position, you know, coming from the New York the paper of record.
1: Yeah, and, and so there was this there's this crazy thing where because it's non-white people we don't realize how uh, or we don't I mean plenty of people do but mm-hmm. but a lot of people don't realize because we so subtly dehumanize people how absurd the mainstream position is. So for example, if I went if if you if you went to London, mm-hmm. you would not be you would not and you wanted to apply for asylum. Mm -hmm. You wouldn't expect to be detained in the airport because if you travel to London, you show your passport, they let you into the country, and then you would apply, and then you would wait to see what what the country's decision was. Right, Mm -hmm. The idea of detaining people before letting them into the country is very strange with asylum seekers. These are asylum seekers that we're often talking about with with this wave of of immigrants at the southern border. They're people who are applying for a – to be granted a legally guaranteed under international law status. Now the question is, well, if you don't have any reason to think they're a danger and if they're applying for asylum – why wouldn't you just let them into the country until you process their application the same way that if I go to any country around the world, I expect to show my passport and be admitted. Yeah.
0: Yeah. I mean there's just this like by default you're a criminal if you're not American. And specifically if you're not white. Um, but we it's, like, we the don't want assumption that. Made by, <laughs> yeah, it's it's, it's we just,
1: expect that we can just travel around the world and anyone will let us in.
0: Yeah. I mean, it's, there's so many people I think who've just never experienced exclusion of any type, um, mm-hmm. that don't realize how just personally awful it is. And especially <laughs> if there's like real consequences, like, um, you know, this is an extremely bougie example, but my parents were flying first class and I wasn't, and I wanted to go see them on the plane and they wouldn't let me up. <laughs> and I was like, well, fuck <laughs> you, man. <laughs> They're my parents.
1: Your um, parents made you fly coach? <laughs>
0: Yeah, yeah, they did. Um, which, like, we should all fly coach, I mean, realistically. Um, no, That's Nobody should funny. have first class, but <laughs> the class struggle on the airplane was real. No.
1: Yeah, everyone should have first class. <laughs> oh, I,
0: the luxury left this position, I, mm-hmm. I agree. Yeah, yeah, as long as it's environmentally sustainable. Uh, which it isn't. <laughs> no, absolutely not. Um, yeah, no, it's, I, I mean, it's, it's like the Chomsky position of, like, just imagine, you know, any other country did to us what we do to everybody else and like how ridiculous it would seem like americans
1: just assume they could go vacation in acapulco they don't think they're gonna have any like hassle but if mexico started going i'm sorry we're not letting in americans they'd be they'd be, they'd be like what the hell? that's crazy you're not yeah. gonna you're just not gonna let us in
0: yeah i mean it's, it's chauvinism right like it's just assuming yeah. that because of your status as yeah. an american like american chauvinism still under Gerd's like American politics you know it's just oh, yeah. taken as a given, and I think Bernie is just a product of you know American politics. he's been doing it for thirty plus years yeah and, that's true um it's probably just very hard to change out of the America first like assumption
1: yeah oh i I know because that's I mean this is what I mean like Ben Chomsky's entire career is pointing out just just how much we fail to th- ask the question. Okay, but what if it was them instead of us? How mm-hmm. would we apply? How would the thing that we're saying ap- apply right now? Yeah. If if someone invaded us under these justifications, how would we feel about it? And we go, oh, that would be ridiculous. Um, you know, if if yeah. if North Korea said that we were a threat because we have four thousand nuclear warheads, we, <laughs> you know, well, yeah. well, we are objectively a threat. Why can't any country? You know, yeah, what? right. <laughs> Why can't we be treated as an existential threat to the planet? We clearly are.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we when you start when you first start looking for this, you start seeing it everywhere. Uh, I picked up this book called Legacy of Ashes and just read mm, the forward. Book. It's yeah, it's it's by this about the CIA by a New York Times reporter. I, I did not read it, but I read the forward and he talks about how the CIA has failed to keep Americans safe. It has gotten Americans killed. And makes no mention of like the millions of people that the CIA <laughs> have been, you a know, yes. uh, party to their murder, right. uh, you know, over the last like sixty, seventy years, and it's just like astonishing to me because I mean, in your article on the Vietnam War, uh, you mm. go out of your way to make it about the Vietnamese people who are like overwhelmingly the victims by orders of magnitude.
1: It's it, it it's incredible because I I googled Vietnam how many died, and. Mm-hmm. Just to see what will come up, and it and the the first answer that came that Google came up with the answer was um like
0: fifty six thousand Americans fifty six
1: thousand Americans died yeah. in Vietnam, and you go excuse me, I didn't ask how many Americans died, I said Vietnam, how many died?
0: <laughs> and <laughs> Google, and yeah, Google childrenism
1: <laughs> millions of Vietnamese people died, and you still see this in talking about people talking about the Iraq War, people talking about the Vietnam War is oh look at the, this many Americans were killed. And you think, well, that's true, but the Amer- also the Americans were soldiers. Um, Vietnamese casualties were far worse um, mm-hmm. because they're innocent civilians in many cases, yeah. hundreds of thousands of innocent civilians. now you know i don't like it when soldiers die either but but you know soldiers have weapons and and <laughs> so there's a sense generally that there's a more uh, more legitimate targets than yeah. civilians
0: yeah no it's, it's it's astonishing and and like when you i think you also had a piece on media hierarchy of victims um which if you haven't yes. seen nightcrawler is a great movie uh kind of about this as well no what is that uh it's a jake gyllenhaal movie about the uh, kind of like disaster media like covering crime um mm. and you know talk talking a lot about how like you know brown and black people getting murdered doesn't get like TV, but like, you know, a wealthy couple, wealthy white couple in an upscale neighborhood getting murdered in their homes. is like a huge story and getting the first footage on the scene is like extremely valuable. Um, it's yeah, it's great. It's actually like the main character is basically mm. capitalism distilled.
1: <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. I, I mean, there's media hierarchy of victims article I wrote was um, it was about the Really blatant way. I mean, we all know this, right? We all know that a death uh, in a different country is valued differently by the American news media as a death in our country. And we kind of accept, oh, well, you know, that's because the US media reports on our country. Um, But it really is striking when you actually try and quantify it, as some people have. Um, You know, you can measure just how many African lives are worth one canadian life to u.s media Mm -hmm. um in terms of in terms of amount of amount of coverage in in similar kinds of catastrophes and it's disturbing because if you're a humanist and you believe that all lives should be weighted equally this really distorts people's understanding of what's going on in the world and it has policy implications like for example Um, My colleague, Brianna Renix, who writes on immigration and is an immigration attorney, she and I wrote an article about drug violence um, in Mexico. And the violence along the Mexican border has been so severe for the past few years. I mean, tens of thousands of murders per year and none of it gets reported like if it were if it were 10 feet on the other side of the border yeah. it would all get reported on the us news but because it's on the mexican side of the border even though it's like a stone's throw from the united states sometimes quite literally like that that's how close we're talking um, it just doesn't get covered at all. And this is a huge humanitarian crisis. It should affect all of our thinking about drug policy and it doesn't because Mexican lives are, you know, Mexican-American lives in in America would get, you know, more reported, not as as reported as white lives, but Mexican lives just negligible to the US media.
0: Yeah, yeah, I mean there was a period of time where El Paso was the safest city in America. And Juarez, is bordering Mexican counterpart, mm-hmm. was the murder capital of the world. Um, and yeah, it was not reported. I, I took a class on cartel literature, and that was the only reason I knew this. But um, it's astonishing, like how many people have been killed by largely our yeah. policies. And right. uh, U.S. military has supported and trained, you know, cartels that they were originally going to fight the cartels and just defected and then use special forces training to carry out even more gruesome murders. And stuff. our
1: demand for, for yeah. drugs. Oh, right. All, right? All, Why all, is yeah. it happening on our border? Because it's the product is flowing to our country. So you yep. know, we, we have we have the well, there's blood on our hands here in every, in many, many ways.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Um your, your mediocrism actually sounds like uh uh Steven Pinker, where he talks about how you know the media only talks about bad things and disproportionately focuses on like these like <laughs> acts of violence that are very unlikely to happen. Um, right. And you know he's, he's right about that uh, you know, just yeah, because
1: it comes from the mouth of Stephen pinker doesn't mean it's wrong <laughs> i know no, it's interesting
0: because like I, I went through a phase where i thought Stephen pinker could do no wrong I, I read the better angels of our nature mm-hmm. about why violence has declined and i was like this is incredible um it is like a very impressive piece of, of work in many ways um yeah i wrote a very long review of it and like my criticisms were you know it doesn't it's it defends american imperialism it defends like the iraq right. war like not not saying it was a good thing but like oh well you know it was an unstable country and like when Saddam died a mm-hmm. lot of people would have died anyway or vietnam right. like i don't know how he downplayed it uh ignores criminal like you know mass incarceration he, he talks bl- about he, it i think
1: he i think he blamed vietnam on the north vietnamese i, yeah. I seem to yeah. or at least he right. said like the violence that occurred was because of like revolutionary <laughs> nationalist movements
0: like, yeah yeah exactly um and there was a good international socialist uh Essay, um, I think by Edward Herman and somebody else on yeah on they this. wrote a long it, in my review thing. I I, li- I link to it he mm-hmm. doesn't really engage with like factory farming or mass incarceration like properly um, no but you know otherwise like it is true it is the safest time to be a randomly assigned person it's ever been
1: yes although I think there's a very reasonable crit- I mean the Chomsky criticism of Pinker is to say. And and I have I haven't seen I I didn't read Better Ages, but I read Enlightenment now and mm-hmm. I was not satisfied with the way he dealt with okay but isn't this like saying that I mean if if we take nuclear weapons to be essentially every major global power having a gun at each other's head mm-hmm. all the time mm-hmm. is it it's a little strange to say that you're safer than ever. When everyone's pointing a gun at each other at all the times. You say, well, <laughs> it's it's not violent necessarily, but it's very but that is very tense. Yeah. And the there's a section of Enlightenment now, I think, called Is the Long Peace a nuclear peace, and it's quite unsatisfying, actually, where he kind of does concede that new um, you know having nuclear weapons might be one of the reasons that we can't go to war because the consequences would just be so high, but that to me, just like pointing a gun at someone and not firing it is still kind of a violent act Um, means that it seems strange to me to call this a peaceful era. If it's, if, if it's so characterized by the presence of all these waiting, unfired uh, weapons of mass destruction
0: everywhere. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you could, Nassim Talib, uh, the wackadoo statistician made a critique <laughs> kind, of, kind of along these lines, like saying, you know, the expected value of, of violence right now is actually like very high because, you know, our technology has only in, increased. Um, mm-hmm. so if you like look at, you know, the probability of global, global nuclear war, uh, and multiply it by like the consequences, you know, that's mm-hmm. the expected value of like, violence i guess and Mm -hmm. it's it's you know higher maybe than it's ever been or probably peaked around like the 80s um and yeah the thing is like we don't experience that so right i I don't know there's so many things so many ways in which did Piccolo respond to that
1: did he have a counter argument to that uh the
0: the talib like it was kind of he said he was not making claims about like the future Mm -hmm. um he was just saying that right now it is like the most peaceful time it's been he's very careful to say it could reverse like all these trends could You know, undo themselves. And there's some evidence that that has been happening. Like there's a counter enlightenment. Kind of yeah. going on right now in the West, with like the rise of Trump and Brexit. And but all, like,
1: yeah, he and all. always says, "Oh, I'm not predicting the future." But then, then you go, "Well, then I'm not sure how valuable the claim is because mm-hmm. then you could say, like, well, 1930 is a very peaceful. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, inter- I think, I think what he says
0: is like, what are the reasons this happened, and then like what's make those more like true, like make them happen more often? Which yeah, and some of those things are good. Like one example, one reason he gives is like feminization, like having women have more power and like you know making men less aggro it's like yeah i, I yeah. think that's a good thing um he talks about gentle commerce so like trade decreasing the likelihood yeah. of violence between the united states and china which may actually be true but then like you know there's all these other bad things about it and if we could have trade yeah. that didn't have exploitation bundled into it like that sounds good as well yeah. uh but then he packages in like these weird arguments like about like sexual assault statistics there's a great twitter thread about that that is like You know, they're very misleading. And then Enlightenment Now, I think, is like a substantially less high quality book.
1: It's just bizarre to take the most tense and dangerous possible situation and the point at which we're at the highest risk ever of destroying our entire world and 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 talk about (laughs) decline, (laughs) decline of violence, Um, because it might be correct, but it's just an odd way to frame the present moment, I think.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I I think you don't want to be too pessimistic. And that's something I think current affairs does very well. It's like I come away uplifted after each episode. Um, And I think we should be honest that like the past sucked. Like the past really sucked for almost everybody. Uh, I watched the ballad of Buster Scruggs last night and it's like, you know, it's a silly like (laughs) Coen Brothers movie, but like, man, the past really sucked. (laughs)
1: Uh,
0: You just die like a day after getting sick and like then, you know, your sister buries you and like that's it. Um, But, you know, we should acknowledge that like, yeah, I think we exchanged emails about how Pinker doesn't really acknowledge like why things have gotten better in many ways, which is like, you know, activist movements right. uh, made up of people who in the contemporary era, he's very critical of. You know, He's very critical of campus activists and their strategies mm-hmm. and just kind of dismissive of people who like seem to be agitating for a better world. Uh, right. But that's the reason, in my view, like, you know, why united states has gotten better in any way it's like there was a civil rights movement and a you know feminist yeah. movement and and all these good things that came out, came from that
1: yeah there, there are a lot of a lot of problems i have with his analysis especially but it comes because part because i am kind of a hopeful person so i don't i i, I sh- and i share a lot of the basic same perspective which is why i find it so frustrating where when he goes ah well you know intellectuals all hate progress Hmm. um and social justice warriors are so silly and oh nobody appreciates how great we have it and you think well i'm sorry but like there are some of us who have somewhat sophisticated analyses and they're perfectly capable of saying um you know, our leftism does not preclude saying things have improved. Karl Marx's leftism did not preclude saying things had Im- improved in many ways. I mean, it did the opposite, he, really. Right. So, um, yeah. so it just seems very unfair. You know, his writing on inequality is just absurd. Right. He basically accepts the. Um, Harry Frankfurt position that inequality doesn't matter without mm. dealing with any of the philosophical arguments for why inequality matters an awful lot, um, and uh, and and basically goes well. Yeah, it's true that inequality is taking off, but so what?
0: <laughs> yeah, I mean, at this point, he's kind of like painted himself into a corner of being like the the progress guy and like the things yeah. are going well. And I think like he like to think of himself as like this dispassionate intellectual who's just like looking at the data. Um, but I mean, data can be interpreted in many ways, and like what charts you choose to cite mm-hmm. and where you draw, you know, the boundaries like matters a lot.
1: Oh yeah. Um, well, in fact, I was just uh, I just re- published an article today about how um, some of the inequality statistics used by people like Pinker uh, are incredibly misleading because one of the things they often use is they use um, logarithmic scales on mm-hmm. the um, on on the on the y the axis. Y- to 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 suggest that people in um, non-Western countries are catching up way faster than they actually are. Right. So,
0: so like jumping from like $1,000 a year to like $5,000 a year. Yeah. Like so they'll be jumping from 1000
1: to 5000 and it'll look like they're getting really close, but actually like, you know, North America is up at $100,000 a year. And if you actually did it on a, on a realistic scale, um, the improvement would look, you know, far less impressive than what they're saying. So mm-hmm. you can really cheat in the way that you present the data.
0: When Bill Gates and other members of the global elite are saying like, this is my favorite book now your new book is my favorite book. Like, I don't know. I, you know, when I write, I want my work to challenge people who have like enormous amounts of power. And I think, Mm -hmm. you know, power invites challenge. And, uh, I would want to reconsider. It's like, okay, if this makes like extremely wealthy people feel good about themselves, um, you know, maybe it's not like discomforting, (laughs) you know, the right people. And, and Bill Gates has done like some very good things for the world. Uh, some not so great things as well. Um, but yeah I just think that's like kind of funny when also he's he's got this photo of him with Jeffrey Epstein and I think Alan oh Dershowitz um oh boy did not did not age very well
1: well but that's again the, the sorts of things is you know if, if he's right then it's fine that it supports the elite perspective if he's correct mm-hmm. um, but one of my problems is it's the same thing just to just to come back um to 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 this idea that they don't listen you know, my problem is that he doesn't listen to the left. He dismisses the left without hearing out our arguments. So it's the same as these intellectual dark web types. They all dismiss the left and pretend that we're all we're all idiots mm-hmm. when we have pretty sophisticated takes on things. That takes that I think are correct, but we can have discussions. But they don't even want to have the discussions because they're so confident um, that they're completely right and that people on the left can't possibly have looked at the
0: data. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's this quote from Sam Harris. He says, at this point, the left is irredeemable, which what does that mean? <laughs> like, where are you going to go for for progress? Because the right in America is like bordering on fascism, and white yeah. nationalism, depending on who you ask. It is that already. Um, and then the center clearly just was not effective enough to prevent something right. like Trump from happening or prevent climate change from getting out of control. And, you know, I I say this to my friends in effective altruism who are skeptical of the left. They'll be like, oh, you know, the left isn't sufficiently like rooted in evidence or, you know, maybe not sufficiently open borders, actually, Um, to which I'm like, okay, then like get involved, make arguments, change it because like this, this train is leaving the station and it's our best shot, I think, at, you know, making this planet livable and humane and just. Mm -hmm. And uh, I'd rather you be on board and trying to help make it more evidence-based and more, you know considerate of all these different important downstream effects. Um, and I just don't see that happening anywhere else. Yep. Come and join us. <laughs> yeah. Come, come You know, we're, we're fun. We're uh, we've got ideas. It's, it's exciting.
1: Get a comment um, the description.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I, I want to ask, like, I want to finish like one, one question. Yeah. Um, why write versus, you know, doing running for office, being a public defender, being a labor <laughs> organizer and activists, like in general, like the case for writing and then why, for you specifically
1: um well so one of the things I, I think writing can be tremendously uh you get a lot of bang for your buck right because uh you can reach a lot of people mm-hmm. if you do it in ways that uh, that are readable um for me it's obvious because it's the thing i'm best at right i, I mean i, I couldn't be a political candidate no, that'd, be, that'd be a disaster
0: Right. Um, I think it would be a beautiful disaster.
1: It would be hilarious, obviously. <laughs> um, being a public defender, I strongly considered. I, I did a summer in law school at the New Orleans Public Defender. I thought I was going to what I was going to be. But ultimately, you weren't actually changing anything. You are trying to um, keep afloat a, a dysfunctional system. Yeah, and unless you
0: run to be DA, but that's very yeah. long the lines.
1: But that's the thing, right? So for me, this makes the most sense. I think mm-hmm. there are different things that make sense for different people. And I, I don't, I wouldn't say that everyone should write. Um, a lot of times writing is completely useless, but I have managed to find a way to write that I think it is quite helpful. And, um, and that it, it, thinking about, as I've weighed the different the ways I could use my time, it, it has seemed to be probably the mo- most, um, most effective. But, but no, I, I, don't, I don't dismiss any of the other routes. Someone's got to, people do have to run for office. It's very important.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I would agree with you. I think uh, you're a great writer and having some big impact in the world. Uh, the, the well, thank pe- you. And so are you.
1: And people should read oh, your current affairs articles. Ah,
0: thank you. Thank you. Uh, the, yeah. The Pete Booty Drop article uh, seemed to really have some impact because it was just early and uh-huh. it was like the f- most substantive thing written on it. Um, and yeah, it really helps set the narrative, which I think is really important. People,
1: it changed minds. I got a lot of emails from people going, oh, I kind of liked him. And then I didn't after your article. And that makes you think, well, okay. Yeah. This can
0: work. Yeah, super important. Uh, well, Nathan, thank you so much for, for all that you do for current affairs. And uh, the thank rest you, Garrison.
1: Lovely to talk to you.
0: This has been the most interesting people I know. If you enjoyed the show, please rate it on iTunes. I don't know why this matters, but every other podcast I listen to asks people to do this. Music is by me. Podcast design is by Jacob Abrowitz. I hope you enjoyed the show.